0: There's a whole lot of things I want
1: to tell you about Adventures dangerous and queer Some you could guess, and some I've only hinted at So please let me your ear Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex taffy Hello and welcome to another podcast episode of Gender Stories. This is the first podcast episode that we're also recording and putting out on video. So uh, let us know if this is a welcome addition. Of course, you can still listen to Gender Stories on any podcast listening platform, and now also on my YouTube channel. So today I am overjoyed, excited, thrilled. You know that I truly, authentically am excited about every guest, but I'm extra excited because I'm here to talk with Colton Schenicke, who is one of my amazing mentees. Not only are they a therapist in both Minnesota and Wisconsin, a sex therapist, a researcher and doctoral student, they also have a wonderful recipe book for cupcakes called Spread Love and Buttercream. Highly recommend it. I have tried some of the cupcakes recipes and they are amazing. Colton, what am I missing? You do so many things. <laughs> well what else can I say about you apart from like singing your you're, praises?
0: You're you're really just gonna challenge my Midwest humble here. Uh, I yes, really am. So uh Yeah, my name is Colton Shenicky. My pronouns are they, them. Uh, As Alex said, I am so lucky and privileged to be one of their mentees. Um, And yeah, I am a marriage and family therapist and sex therapist, uh, working on my final full licensure uh, for both Wisconsin and Minnesota, hopefully in the coming uh, months. And then I also am a doctoral student uh, in couple and family therapy at Antioch University, New England, uh, in couple and family therapy. And then I'm also a teaching fellow there in their uh, gender affirming clinical practice certificate, uh, which feels really apt. And then, yeah, I bake cupcakes sometimes. Uh, That's fun. Uh, Wrote a book once. That was cool. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So.
1: Well, I think the book is delightful and there is more than cupcake recipes in it. And I really recommend you go get Spread Love and Buttercream. But today we're not here to talk about cupcakes. We're here to talk about gender affirming care because both of us are therapists who work with a lot of trans, non-binary or gender expansive people. And uh, in this current climate, there is a lot of misinformation about gender affirming care. So we wanted to kind of just Clear the air a little bit, give you some information from the perspective of two therapists who are gender specialists. Uh, I'm a WPATH kind of certified gender specialist and mentor as well. And so we just want to give you some information because there is a lot of misinformation out there. Um so let's start from what is gender affirming care? How would you define it, Colton, if you had to define gender affirming care?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a really nebulous. Sort of all encompassing term, which I think is one reason why I'm so excited to be doing research in that area, especially. So we can sort of solidify some of these ideas. Um, and yeah, what a time to be doing so in this uh political climate. Uh you mentioned no cupcakes today, but as I think about it, I'm like, that would have been helpful to cope uh as we discuss some of the goings on. But yeah, so it's it's really an all of the above, and I think really stems from this lens of self-determination, autonomy, um, social justice, uh, really just the idea that you know someone is saying who they are and letting them speak to that and then the idea of gender affirmation from there and then you know the care component stemming into a myriad of different, ways that one may do that. Uh, and so there's mm-hmm. medical, social, uh, psychological, obviously, the realm that we specifically work in is mental health care. So we're on the, the therapy end. Um, but of course, too, uh, as with a lot of the hot button articles, there's also things like hormone and surgery treatments that a lot of people have a lot of feelings about. Um, and and yeah, I, I often say that You know, there's about as many gender experiences and gender identities. If we get rid of the boxes and labels and organization and going for closest, you know, there's about as many gender identities as there are people. I'd say the same. There's as many ways to practice gender affirming care as those who need it.
1: I love that. And and that, I think, gets to one of the key points of gender affirming care, right, that all gender identities and expressions are valid.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's
1: not just about trans identities or non-binary identities. Really, it's like all identities are valid if somebody is on a journey of exploration and they decide that their identity is actually to be like a cis man or a cis woman, or even some people identify as cis non-binary or gender expansive, like, all gender identities Mm -hmm. are kind of valid and beautiful and all gender expressions are valid and beautiful. And so it's not just about affirming some genders above others. I think that's a misconception that some people have as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's this idea too of like, oh, if we're, you know, showing people this idea of gender affirming care, they're going to get all these sorts of ideas and, and what it means. And I also just think of, you know, when I was a kid, you know, 10 o'clock at night and there's a TV ad of like pills for men with low testosterone, like that's gender affirming care. Um, even like YouTube, I keep seeing a bunch of ads for like, uh, keeps not sponsored, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, medication for preventing hair loss, you know, that's gender affirming care. Um, You know, people who identify as cis female, you know, wanting reduction or augmentation around their breasts, uh, for whatever their expression is Mm -hmm. um and what they want it to be. That's gender-affirming care. It's whatever is aiding you and letting you tell the world and yourself who you are and who you want to be. And that once again applies to trans folks, non-binary folks, agender folks, two spirit folks, just as much as it also applies to cisgender folks and then of course all of the other myriad uh, beautiful diverse experiences outside of those couple of labels.
1: Absolutely and I think one of the things that's worth mentioning though is that for some trans or non-binary or gender expensive people who experience gender dysphoria Just as for cis people who experience uh, body dysmorphia, for example, there is very much a component that it's medically necessary, right? There is Mm -hmm. a real distress. There is a real felt emotional, psychological distress. Often it's also a relational distress or a vocational distress that means that it's impacting your capacity to work or to engage in the way you want to work. And so I think it's important because some people think, well, it's just cosmetic. Right. And Mm -hmm. so why should health insurance cover gender affirming care, for example? But it is not cosmetic. It's really about a deep sense of who we are. And it can cause a lot of stress for people not to be able to identify and express who they are, whatever gender identity and expression Mm -hmm. they they want to um, embody in the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, let's call a spade a spade in the current political climate. You know, there's a lot of talk around passing and things like that, and not to say that passing should be a necessary goal for Mm -hmm. anyone. Everyone has their own different relationship with it. But for a lot of people, passing is also a safety issue as well. And so gender care can also be to keep people safe um, if they are presenting in a certain way that frankly, in current climate, people have some feelings about, you know, these interventions and these things not only are medically necessary for someone's own sense of well-being, but also for some people may help them feel safer as they're navigating the world.
1: Absolutely. It might make the difference between getting a job, not getting a job, Mm -hmm. which to survive under capitalism, most of us have to do, right? Or being able to, you know, move through the world with some level of Uh, confidence and safety like you said right whether it's for work whether it's for leisure spending time with family and so on and so I think it is important to speak to that medically necessary part because people think well anybody can just walk in and get surgery even if they're a minor and we'll talk about some of those myths and that's just not true right and uh, so let's give some examples. You know, I think you've already started talking about how there can be medical interventions there, are gender affirming, uh, social interventions, psychological interventions. What are some of the social things that people might want to do that could fall under the umbrella of gender affirming care, for example?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate the keyword might too, because I think it's also important to recognize that once again, you know, every experience is different. And so, you know, some people might want or need certain things and might not want or need other things. Um, I know for me, myself as a trans person, like, I haven't changed my name, like I'm not on hormones or had surgery. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, it was a lot more social uh, rather than medical. And that's just what I wanted and needed. But there's other people who those needs are different. And that's okay and that's to be human um but so gender affirming care in the social realm um it it really just starts with support and that self-determination um and I think that's one of the things that I get most scared about with a lot of this uh legislation and the, the current political climate a lot of my client base is trans and so gender affirming care even in the social component like one example of social transition is changing your name and your pronouns, mm-hmm. uh, if that feels correct for you. Uh, and so gender affirming care is just using my client's right name and pronouns. What a concept. Uh, and so, I, then, know, like right? I said, as someone with a huge uh, client base of trans people, if, you know, it were to be banned in the state, like, oh, I can't use my client's correct name because that's banned now and I could get in trouble. What? Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, it just starts with even how you treat your client, like interpersonally, Mm -hmm. um, and then as well as supporting them around those things. Um, and so like, if someone is wanting to change their name, you know, helping them process through the emotions and the logistics of going through something like a legal name change mm-hmm. um checking in with them like okay you know you're socially transitioning at work or school like how is that going for you how is it feeling how have people been treating you um really just being there alongside through that social transition process
1: absolutely and sometimes uh, at least in my experience it also means being there through the doubts right it's yep. like i've had clients who are like i don't know if i should transition and i'm like that is okay. It's cool. okay to slow down. It's okay to stop. It's okay to, you know, um, if you want to retransition into your gender assigned a birth, I'm mm-hmm. here to support you no matter what. And I think that's another misconception, right? That I think as gender affirming therapists, we're there to support our clients no matter what. Mm-hmm. Like if there are doubts, if there are, um, you know, further explorations that are needed. We're there to support our clients through that. And I think that's a psychological element of gender affirming care, mm-hmm. right? You need space to explore. Do you want to try a name and pronoun, but you're not sure? We can try it out here, mm-hmm. see how it feels. And then Maybe you have taken it out in the world that you're right. actually, this is not me. That's okay. We're still here to support you. I Mm -hmm. think that's that psychological support of really giving the space, giving a container, asking the questions we need to ask when people want to engage in kind of medical procedures as well to make sure that the clients have really processed as much as possible whatever choices they want to make in their life in whatever direction they choose to move, right? Yep. Absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit more about medical interventions like puberty suppressions or surgical interventions or hormonal interventions a little bit later, but, you know, why might people seek gender affirming care? You know, sometimes people are like, well, why can't you just be who you are without needing like a label, for example, or Mm. without needing to change anything, right? Sometimes people cis people, I would say, say that, right? Um, Why, why do you feel that some of us look for gender affirming care?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, my initial thought as I was thinking about that question, and my response was, like, if we look at certain definitions, like I mentioned, you know, the idea of gender affirming care, just being me treating you respectfully as a person, you know, does anyone seek it or is it just everyone is getting gender affirming care all the time? Because, you know, any client Mm -hmm. that you have coming through the door, you're seeing them for their gender identity and respecting that uh, hopefully. And if you're a therapist out there who hasn't been doing that, maybe, you know, do some reflection and some supervision work and talk about why that's coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but more specifically, like why people might seek the, the more traditional quote unquote, you know, gender affirming care is needing that space in that container. I think you put it beautifully. Um, and so, depending on what that person is needing, um, mm-hmm. that might differ what they're going there seeking out um, for a lot of different medical transition uh, procedures. People need letters from a therapist. So sometimes the goal coming to me might be, hey, can we do some of the talking and discussion and work to get that letter if it's appropriate? Um, Other times it might be much more exploratory, like you've mentioned. I've had a handful of clients uh, who I just feel so dearly good about just as much with my trans clients who came in. They were Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm not sure, but I want to just have some space to, to think on it and look at it. And at the end of it, they were like, you know, I, I don't think I'm trans. I don't think I want to transition, but I'm glad I took the space to to think about it and ask myself those questions. I love that for you. I'm so yep. glad. That's um, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. It's you telling me who you are, not the other way around. Um. And so, yeah, sometimes it's about those access pieces like letters. Sometimes it's exploratory. Sometimes Someone's already far into their transition, but also just wants, you know, support and to be affirmed for who mm. they are. Perhaps you're dealing with like work or school discrimination or things like that and just want a space to be yourself. Um, you know, once again, a myriad of reasons.
1: Absolutely. And yeah. Um... And I think it is important to talk about that there are so many reasons why, and there are also so many benefits, right? Even Mm -hmm. those clients, like you said, that have come and taken the space to explore, and maybe are like, you know, actually, I'm not trans. Or, you know, maybe um, it's just something that I want for myself to feel this gender expansiveness and I don't need to change anything in my daily life, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the benefits are so wide-ranging, right? Just from kind of the psychological benefit of I've explored something that I had questions about, and now I feel more at peace, all the way to lowering symptoms of depression, lowering symptoms of anxiety, lowering suicidal ideation. We know that Suicidality is ten times higher for trans, mm-hmm. non-binary, and/or gender expansive folks than it is for cis populations. So that's obviously a huge benefit. Yeah. Uh, when people get gender-affirming care, if they're if they're experiencing suicidal ideation, that can really be reduced and sometimes might even go away. Any other benefits that are missing when I think about gender-affirming care that haven't been mentioned? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, one one other thing that I think. I've seen a a bit of that I think is really profound and beautiful to see is um, obviously our area specifically is couple and family therapy. So also relationships under the context of gender affirming care. Um, I've done a lot of beautiful work and gotten to see a lot of beautiful things where both I can give, you know, the person the space to explore as needed, um, but then also those relationships, you know, if I have, you know, a trans kiddo coming in, getting to make that space also for the family to better understand who their kid is saying that they are and and help foster improving that closeness and that relationship uh, and really being able to be a part of that process. Uh, and so it also can bring families and and couples and other relational systems together and closer and a, a facilitated experience to better understand each other and hear each other and see each other. Um, And it's it's just really lovely.
1: I love that. I love that you mentioned that because as a family therapist, I think that's so precious to me. You know, I often say that somebody disclosing their gender identity, whether to a partner or to a parent or any family member, uh, or friend or coworker, it's really mm-hmm. an invitation into further intimacy. It's yep. really taking a risk and saying, I trust you enough to tell you who I truly am. And that hopefully should bring people closer together. Mm-hmm. Right? I think initially it can feel like a rapture, but I think that if we can be there to support and create that continuous family therapist, we can really encourage that connection, that deeper intimacy uh, through vulnerability rather than kind of having that chasm or division that sometimes people feel initially widen. Mm-hmm. We really want to shorten that. We really want to bring people um, in deeper connection generally.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's also just really nice, especially with kids, I think, um, just because they're well, first off, they're kids and they're dealing yeah. with their own stuff and also to just the the way that they can be impacted by things because of their developmental stage. It also is just a great place to have a separate opportunity for parents to like work with me and like process their own mm-hmm. stuff. Um, Absolutely. Because it's okay if you have stuff, um, but just process their own stuff and not be putting it on their kids as they're processing this because mm-hmm. it is a big change. And that's okay. But it gives that clear, intentional, strategic space of this is where you can process that and do the work around it. And then, you know, the kid isn't having to deal with the brunt of it and the consequences.
1: Absolutely. And I'm so glad that we're talking about children because we also know that for children and young people, family support is a mm-hmm. protective factor. And what what we mean when we say it's a protective factor is Those higher levels of depression, anxiety, suicidality that we often see because of systemic oppression with trans and binary and gender expansive folks is reduced when there is family support. In fact, there have been some studies that have really shown that with family support, trans youth and cis youth have almost kind of no difference when it comes to depression, anxiety, substance use, suicidality, all the usual Um, kind of symptoms of systemic oppression that lots of minoritized communities experience, family support makes a huge difference. Yeah. And yet a lot of people say, well, it's fine for grownups to do whatever they want to, but so why can't we just wait until the child is 18 and not just do anything until then, right? Um, What would you say to people who say, why can't people wait until they're 18?
0: Yeah, absolutely and I I think we might get into some hot takes territory but that's okay. Um, we
1: probably will. Yeah, and
0: and I think that there's a couple of reasons. Uh number one, um there's been so much research that has shown that, you know, even kids as young as, you know, 3, 4, or 5 already have a very solid sense of who they are, who mm-hmm. they want to be, their sense of identity. Um and, and so this idea of like, let's have kids wait so that they can figure it out and, and no more, it, it doesn't really hold water when you look at that research and that data. Um, mm-hmm. And so at that point, it, it feels like just having someone just sit around and wait to just sit around and wait. And there's not really any purpose or benefit behind it. Um, the other thing too, that is really important because of that timeline and thus too is one of the more hot button topics is puberty. Yeah. Um, And so if someone has this very set idea, this is who I am and it in whatever way this means differs from, you know, what one would expect based on, you know, my body around puberty, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to start happening traditionally that will probably send someone even farther away from their sense of self and who they are. Mm -hmm. And if we can prevent that. Great. You know, it's all the easier, um, especially, too, if there are things like medical transition that are desired, such as hormones or surgery. Traditionally speaking, and and also binarily speaking as well, you know, there's a lot that you have to sort of undo Mm -hmm. before you can replace um, with adults who are transitioning medically. Of course, this is all very overly simplistic.
1: Of course. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: But you don't have to deal with that if, for example, there's the option of hormone blockers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we can prevent some of the puberty and some of the secondary sex characteristics uh being introduced and debuting that you know would create all the more problems for this person. Um the other thing that's really great about that is you know, if someone really is not sure, this buy some time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and so it's it's just it the pros so Monumentously, like outweigh the cons. It's just baffling to me. Um I was doing some reading and also um there's been some other uh podcasts too who have talked about it like books could K- if books could kill for instance mm-hmm. uh in their episode about the times war on trans kids that's really delightful well not delightful but <laughs> important um like of course there's always going to be side effects as with any treatment and and there is some reading and some some data to show that you know there might be like Bone density concerns, for instance, with hormone blockers. First off, there's not nearly enough longitudinal data to actually confirm Mm -hmm. any sort of severe causality. And also, too, if that's the case, okay, you know exactly what's likely to happen, so then offset it. Okay, hormone blockers and some calcium. Great,
1: problem solved. And uh, and I think there's actually more data that people think because and. Uh, gender Stories has done an episode with the wonderful Dr. Kate Gapford a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, who is, uh, you know, um, oversees the gender identity clinic at Children's Hospital here in Minnesota. And they were so eloquent in explaining really uh, from a medical perspective, mm-hmm. right, that the pros really outweigh the cons because, you know, our scope of practice is mental health. So we of don't want to like, uh, you know, uh, wander too much in the medical field. But like you said, it gives children often that and young people that space to explore if they're not sure. It buys time and it can avoid kind of more significant um, medical interventions later in life if mm-hmm. the young person kind of continues on a path of medical transition. And I say if because not everybody does. Right. And the other thing that I was thinking about, why can't people wait until they're a teen is you're basically asking a child or a young person to put their life on hold, right? There is so much else that's happening beyond gender. You know, we know that peer relationships are super important when people are young, like school, um, hobbies, activities, interests. You know, if people are into sports or dance or music, right? You're asking a child or young person to sacrifice an awful lot Mm -hmm. um, just because their gender identity doesn't align with their gender assigned at birth. And that's a, I think that often people think about, oh, don't don't change anything, but not doing anything has an impact, right? Yep. And, and I don't know, as somebody who's transitioned much later in life, in my early mm-hmm. 30s, um, I often think about what would my life have been like if I transitioned sooner, if I would had like my whole life to be myself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um- yeah, it like not choosing is still choosing.
1: Exactly. And I think people don't think about that.
0: Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. And and yeah, like as a kid, like if you're not doing those things like as you, like you're you're a- being asked to pretend to be someone else until you're 18. And it then just which and then just switch it off, which that's not how growing and developing and you know, personality development and all that stuff works. Um, and so it just, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And, and yeah, you mentioned, you know, transitioning later in life and, you know, what could have been, you know, transitioning in your thirties, even, even myself, I came out when I was 20 and I still, am just like, what could it have been like, you know, had I been out in high school? I mean, granted, Mm -hmm. there's also some concern that maybe it's good that I didn't, uh, pros and cons,
1: right?
0: (laughs) Pros and cons. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, just the wondering, you know, what could have been, and, like, this, I think, is what gets into my hot take territory, is, you know, there's this idea that hormone blockers, you know, lets you pause, Mm -hmm. get some time to, like, figure stuff out, Um, and I'm just, like, who wouldn't want that, (laughs) you know, Um, and granted, for a lot of people, maybe it's not specifically around, Mm -hmm. you know, hormone blockers, or, like, being able to delay puberty, like, if you you know, knew yourself and your gender identity beforehand. And you're like, I can't wait. I'm rearing to go give me all the puberty. Great. Happy for you. Maybe it is something else. Maybe it's like, oh, I wish, you know, I would have had more time to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. I think we're still constantly figuring that out every day. But, you know, everyone is going to have their thing that, you know, a little more time wouldn't have hurt. Mm -hmm. And for some kids, it's that.
1: Absolutely, and in fact, puberty blockers were born out of the desire to pause precocious puberty, which means puberty that comes too early. For example, mm-hmm. when somebody's like eight years old, you know. And and actually, I've been asked a few times, like, "Well, would you give puberty blockers um, to your child?" And I said, "Yes, absolutely." With first of all, if they were trans or gender expansive or non-binary and they were distressed by it, yes. And also if they hit puberty early and that was stressful to them, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't I wanna relieve their their distress? Uh, You know, it's a lot to ask an eight-year-old to manage pubertal transitions in third grade. It's a lot to ask, I think. And and that's where we get the data, right? Like that, those weren't even drugs that were made for trans people. Those drugs were made for cis kids who are hitting puberty early. Mm -hmm. And we know that that can be very stressful on the body and on the psyche as well. And and like you said, who wouldn't want to relieve that distress for Mm -hmm. their kid, right? So I feel like we're starting to go into that territory of debunking some myths about gender affirming care. And so let's do it because there's so much misinformation out there. And we've already talked about how gender affirming care is not about convincing somebody they're trans, right? right. I think there is this idea, you go to the gender specialist and they're going to make you trans, right? That's not how it works. Plenty of people have come to see us and they're still cis afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's your experience, but that's my experience.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, I have, I have quite a history with some clients where, you know, I just wanted to explore, but this was you know, what was right for me and, and okay, cool. And, and then I have some clients where, you know, it's a big epiphany moment and they come to realize this different idea of who they are. And that's cool too. Like the, the way I frame a lot of the work I do in therapy, and I think applies just the same here is I may be holding the map with some ideas of destinations, but you're driving the car at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so if you tell me where you want to go, like, I can help us kind of get there, but you're going to make those calls at the end of the day. Um,
1: Absolutely. You're the options and you get to pick whatever options mm-hmm. work for your life. It's a a la carte menu. It's not a, now you're on this train and we're going in this direction. There's no getting off. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's not at all prescriptive, which is funny because I think, um, that's one of the other myths, I th- or well, not even other, it's just kind of tagging on to what you were saying, this myth that, you know, it is so prescriptive. And in fact, I think that they're instead trying to counter with something that's even more prescriptive than how they perceive gender affirming care as being prescriptive. They being like a lot of these, you know, legislative attacks. And it's funny because I think those prescriptive approaches make all the more problems
1: oh absolutely and talk about scope of practice right we said how important it is to stay within our scope of practice as therapists and i'm like how much politicians would stay within their scope of practice yep but that is a whole different conversation (laughs) right
0: (laughs) yep absolutely but yeah i was just reading some stuff uh because i'm working on editing a paper currently Mm -hmm. just around like gender affirming research practices and and things like that and uh one of the things that's been a really hot button topic right now is detransition and retransition. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, those people who decide for themselves for a myriad of reasons, you know, I'm going to switch gears here, whether it's a, a reverse direction or just a different direction. Um, and in reading some of those papers, one of the things that was really fascinating is like the, the dogmatic sort of approach and the prescriptive nature, um, both in what people perceive gender affirming care to be, and then also, frankly, some ways it's had to be with certain things mm-hmm. like different standards and what have you, actually makes it worse and brings about more regret. Um, yeah. You know, you know, if I'm a trans person, well, I mean, I am a trans person, but a different trans person yes. in this theoretical scenario who's seeking hormones of surgery or what have you, um, you know okay, so I'm thinking I might want to explore this, but there's all these rules, there's all this gatekeeping, there's all this like X, Y, Z of what needs to happen for me to be able to approve this or to be approved for this. Okay, am I going to have to start to sort of skew some things or be strategic or intentional in how I'm portraying things to be able to fit the criteria and, and people rush into it? And so that's what Mm -hmm. this research was finding that I thought was really interesting is people, because they feel like they have to fit a certain mold to be able to get the things start to not have as much of the reflection within that they would be able to have if it was just open. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, there's so many different ways to be trans, and thus there should be so many different ways that might maybe qualify for XYZ gender affirming procedure instead of this absolutely like, bullet list of you know DSM criteria kind of thing. Um, which is one great way to assess, but it shouldn't be the only. Um, no, mm-hmm. and and so it's like if we had more freedom and more space to just, you know explore what's going on for you what is the the true nuanced messy but beautiful description of your experience Mm -hmm. and if you tell me that part of that is then needing this thing and I don't have to like you know count all the the boxes it checks you know there's often going to be a lot less chances of regret
1: Absolutely, because there's more space to explore all the things that we do explore with people when they want surgical interventions, right? We talk to them about, hey, have you thought about uh, future reproductive capacity and whether you want to have children? Hey, have you Mm -hmm. thought about aftercare plan? This is major surgery. Who's going to take care of you? How are you going to make money when you cannot work, right? Mm -hmm. Have you thought about the impact this might have on your relationships with those around you. Do you mm-hmm. understand this is an irreversible procedure, right? We also assess whether somebody's capable of consenting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if they're an adult or whether the family is supportive, if it's a minor, which is much rarer, of course, yeah. for surgical interventions. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But like you said, when there is that space for exploration, then people are much more grounded in whatever yep. choice they make, right? And so there is a lower chance of regret. And, and the regret is so low. It's like one to two percent. All more, the time more
0: people regret knee replacements.
1: Absolutely, than than <laughs> any kind of gender-related surgical intervention. It's one to two yeah. percent, is very, it's actually very successful yes. type of care in some ways, right?
0: Yeah, and certain mm-hmm. certain numbers I've seen have been even lower too. I yes. saw one I saw one study that was like 9. Point, or 99. or 99.7 numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh so yeah, 0.3% like yes, yeah, and like 99.7% were happy and satisfied right. and 0.3% regretted.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Um mm-hmm. and then even too when there are instances of regret Yeah, Um, which can mean a myriad of things and look at a bunch of different ways. People have different conceptions about it and like, what is the actual thing that, you know, is regretted? Like a good amount of that already small number is, you know, I didn't regret the procedure, but I maybe regretted picking this provider or didn't do enough research, but I'm glad that I did the thing or just wish I had better results. Not. I shouldn't have done this procedure or had this change to my body.
1: Absolutely. And even people who retransition, not all of them regret or even um deny their trans identities, more like I don't feel safe or I mm-hmm. cannot, for whatever reason. Uh, navigate this world as a trans person or as a visibly Mm -hmm. trans uh, or non-binary trans person. And that's part of the retransition. Not everybody's also retransitioning because of regret. Right. Mm It's a mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And even if it is a change in conceptualization and identity, you know, not all of those cases are sort of a backward motion. It's not like going back. Some people, it's, you know, this was right for me at the time. And now this different, not necessarily reversed, but just different thing is right for me now.
1: Absolutely. We are fluid, changing relational beings, I truly believe, in so many ways. And why not gender, right? And so we've been talking about this, uh, you know, that sometimes uh, surgical interventions can be part of gender affirming care. And I think that those surgical interventions get really amplified and leveraged. And there is this idea in the general public sometimes that like six or seven year olds or young teens are getting surgical interventions. And that's just not true. No. Like six year olds are getting no medical interventions, first of all. (laughs) Right. Like like, because even there's nothing to intervene there's nothing to intervene, like even puberty suppression happens at a certain stage of development. And you can listen to the episode with Dr. Gripford, who explains all about the different stages of development. So it usually doesn't happen until puberty starts. And then surgical interventions are usually for adults and a tiny number of people, I think one of the numbers was like 200 people in the US over the last five years, got surgical interventions before 18 and usually those people are already 16 17 so they're pretty mm-hmm. close to kind of uh, they have family support they're pretty close to being a teen they want to focus on other things in their life like getting their first job going to college going to prom you know yeah. <laughs> rather <than> yeah. gender. <laughs>
0: yeah absolutely that's the other thing too which is more so just a product of the way that our society is structured for better or for worse like when minors do transition, they cannot do that unless those parents are super duper supportive and willing for them to even Absolutely. be able to partake in that. So literally any single minor who is going to be having any sort of gender affirming procedures are literally in the best circumstances for possible success. Yes, like absolutely, we just don't have these scenarios where it's going to be a hot mess because the way things are structured as a minor and your rights, kids aren't going to be getting into these things if they're not already set up for the best success possible.
1: Absolutely, and you know, usually this very tiny number of young people who are usually well over sixteen, again, they have strong parental support, and also they're people who often have been out as trans since a very young age you know yep. if you've lived as a boy or as a girl or as a non-binary person since you were like five or six years old which is we know when people get a sense of the gender identity um why wouldn't you want to like you know if you keep going in that direction it makes sense that you're like i don't want to have to do this while i'm navigating my first job or mm-hmm. my first year at, at college or university yeah. right i want to just like do you're in, su- in a marriage? I want to do this major surgery while I'm at home with my parents. I'm being cared for, my caregivers, you know, I have my family support. Um, for those young people, kind of makes sense. And like you said, they have strong family support and they're very scrutinized. There is a yeah. lot of scrutiny, not just by providers, but also by insurance companies. There's a lot of scrutiny that goes on for this tiny, tiny, tiny number of people who, uh, Undergo surgical interventions before eighteen.
0: It's also very interesting too. Um, we're we're getting into hot take territory again, and of course, okay. um, it's it's really interesting too. This sort of double bind, uh damned if you do, damned if you don't, that happens with mm-hmm. this political climate um, because both um, hormone blockers and then also surgeries getting so sensationalized, especially around minors, mm-hmm. um, and so. There's already this idea, you know we shouldn't have kids on hormone blockers. you know they can't decide for themselves. they should just decide when they're older, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then we also get the sensationalization about like surgical procedures, for instance, um there's a lot of discussion right now of like top surgery and like breast removal as like yeah. you know these scare quotes all over the place, you know, young girls mutilating their yeah. bodies and all this stuff, and it's just so gross. um, but then there's just a double bind that happens where it's like, okay. So I'm not going to let the kid do the thing that would prevent necessitating this procedure. And then I'm going to penalize them and criticize them for getting said procedure to correct the thing that was avoidable because I wouldn't let them do hormone blockers. Yeah, exactly. And, and, And I think that tiny case study is just one shining example of how this whole discussion around gender affirming care is not about people being able to be confident in their bodies or all the like body positivity, safety of women, internalized Mm -hmm. misogyny, all this stuff. It's just about controlling bodies. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and and we do see that because it seems to be the same political actors who are behind some of the anti-trans legislations also seem to be wanting to have a say on any reproductive capacity, for example— um, or which medications should be accessible. Again, talk yep. about going beyond your scope of practice as a politician. And we are totally getting into hot take hot takes territory. So let's stay <coughs> sorry. Let's stay into the hot take territory and let's talk about something that is controversial and it came from just like one research study and a couple of papers, but it's really taken hold of the collective imaginary, which is this idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria, ROGD, which has been vastly condemned as not a theory, but every reputable professional and psychological like association at this point. Uh, Yeah, let's let's go there. Let's talk about ROGD.
0: Oh, God. Okay, I need to be careful here. Because as I talk about ROGD, I have the tendency to burst into flames. um, because It's just so aggravating.
1: Maybe we'll just have some embers rather than full full fledged, like,
0: uh, no cupcakes, but maybe we can do some s'mores. Uh, Yes. So, um, it's, it's also funny, too, as a as a doctoral student and now researching, because uh, I'd seen all this stuff even mm-hmm. just as a master's level practitioner, and you could already, you know, see straight through it how transparently bogus it was. But thankfully, now as a doctoral student, I can also explain why it's bogus. Absolutely. Um, and so it, it started off with this one fringe paper. Even looking at it still, I don't know how in a million years it got published uh, because it. It recruited strictly from parents, did not talk to kids, uh, but recruited from parents of several notorious anti-trans hate sites. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's going to be a biased sample. I don't think that there's another way that you could possibly spin it. No, I
1: think that is the definition of sampling bias, actually. Right. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) Um, And so... And also too, only talk to the parents, didn't talk to the kids. Yeah at
1: all. Another mythological flaw,
0: absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so basically this whole idea is portraying dysphoria and in this idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria as some sort of uh social contagion. Uh basically the the shortest way I can sum it up is um just trying to find a nice medical pathologizing researchy speak way of saying like my kids saying they're trans because their friends are trans um and it's it's just ridiculous um it's it's really interesting one of the things uh, when I was reading through that paper uh, for some of the research I was working on a little bit ago because I was a masochist and decided I needed to read it uh, for whatever reason. Uh, one of the things that stood out was, you know, it's interesting, like the parents of kids who have rapid on, ger- onset gender dysphoria um, are statistically more likely to have experiences where their kids call them transphobic. Shocker. Uh, I am um,
1: shocked, horrified. That is sarcasm, yes.
0: Right, exactly. Um, but so it's also interesting. It's like, perhaps I could theorize. This is solely anecdotal, of course, but I could theorize perhaps if a kid recognizes that you may have some tendencies they perceive as transphobic, they probably might avoid telling you that they are trans or feel that they are trans until the last possible moment. Yeah. And So that might be why it feels sudden to you.
1: And sometimes that moment is when puberty hits because yep. puberty is stressful uh, for a lot of people, but especially for trans non-binary kids, like in young people, it's very stressful.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and there's just so many deep-seated issues with this entire idea and this entire notion. Um, also, too, a lot of the ways that they look at it are so incredibly gendered and just really gross um, and work into a lot of like tropes and stereotypes. I also think mm-hmm. a lot of it gets weaponized in really harmful ways, um, especially to because it's not science, but yet looks like science. Um, and that's one of the biggest arguments that people try to use against transness and gender variance is like, yeah. but it's science, biology, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um,
1: it's actually not but that's exactly yeah yeah yeah, that's that's a whole nother
0: conversation (laughs) it's not trans people have always existed and will always exist Um, also biology is not as binary as people think but right and and everything socially constructed and made up um and so it's just so deep-seated how like you can see all of the like methodological problems like all of the ethical problems all of the clear bias on all of this whole approach um I I mentioned, uh, bursting into flames, like a couple of weeks ago, I, I had a very similar, just like bursting into flames from sheer rage, uh, (laughs) because there was another paper that came out about, uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Uh, and once again, same issues with the methodological bias, the way that they were sampling, it was another, it was like, they recruited from parents of ROGD kids.com. Like what?
1: Yeah, very um, problematic data. I think there are also some ethical issues with Yes, uh, I was just um, getting into that. With, yeah. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. They Great. uh they also just blatantly acknowledged in uh in their research that they uh did research on human subjects without IRB approval, which is like the the no-noist of no-nos. Well,
1: because the uh, data was already out there, that being that collected by somebody who was not a researcher, in my understanding, good, it's just like, good times.
0: <laughs> like, if you really think that you found something, which trust me, ROGD wouldn't be it, but I'll entertain it for a second. Like, if you found something that you think is like big, and like you were just getting some data, and you're like, oh, we should make this academic and scientific. I'm sorry, it sucks, but just like go back and start over. Just get new data. Like but having done it through appropriate measures, like getting an IRB ethics approval and
1: exactly like the, that. Those institutional review boards are there to protect the public exactly from this kind of misinformation getting out. So shame on the journal that published it. But that's a whole other story that we're not going to get into today. Yes, <laughs> yes,
0: absolutely. Uh, but yeah, so like I said, I just, I I, from time to time, will burst into flames just thinking about this.
1: Well, and I, I think they're very like scientifically sunned flames in that we're both trained as researchers. Yep. I mean, I know you're still in training. I, I've, I don't know. I've lost count now. Over 20 years, 30 years almost, I'm getting old, of research. <laughs> and I've taught research methodology and I can see a lot of methodology when I see it. But um, let's not get too technical. I do want to go back to something that you were saying. Uh, which I think it's really important, which is if children and young people don't feel safe to tell a parent, um, about their gender identity, they will wait until the last possible minute. So either mm-hmm. when, until the distress is high enough or, or even when they've made that sense of themselves, because they're also influenced, right? But this atmosphere that's maybe, uh, if not fully on transphobic, at the very least cisgenderist, which means it mm-hmm. paused, posi- you know, um, it views cis identity as inherently better or superior or more normal, in air quotes, yeah. than trans identities, right? And there is like a lot of social discourse around do parents have the right to know if their child is using a different name and pronoun, for example, at school or with their therapist? And this idea that um, the parent or caregiver has the right, again, in air quotes, to know. Uh, If their child that's disclosed their gender identity to like a trusted therapist or counselor or social workers or a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. What, what do you think about this idea of the parents' right to know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and also to discourse is a really nice shorthand for New York op or New York times (laughs) op-eds yes, because they've had a lot of feelings about this for a lot of years. Um, And so it's just uh, it it's funny once again to like the idea of you know if you as a parent feel so strongly that you should be knowing these things about your kids um even just entertaining that as a notion like what are you doing as a parent to facilitate that space where your kid can come to you mm-hmm. um because also too like this is just my, my bias and my feelings, but that's probably the better way to know things about your kids. I don't think parenting as a surveillance state often tends to go very well. Uh, and so hopefully most of the ways that you know things about your kids are them telling you instead of you having to find out. Um, and so, yeah, what environment are you setting up for them to feel like they can tell you safely, uh, no matter how messy, unpolished, uh, you know, we were just in a training uh, this weekend and one of the phrases I heard a lot that I just really enjoyed is like, this thought is still cooking. Like, mm. what, what atmosphere are you creating for your kids to be able to tell you like, hey, this thing is still cooking, but like, here's what I'm thinking about, you know, just having some thoughts um, before the last minute. Um, and of course, like I said, too, that's even entertaining, you know, the idea if there is this inherent um like ordained right to know uh which also is a whole nother can of worms and i think i think as as a parent and of course too i'm going to acknowledge my own positionality as not a parent um Mm -hmm. and and have not having had that personal experience but for parents i think it's probably better and more helpful To to know what's going on in your kid's life and for them to tell you those things. But I also think, I don't think always, but I do think quickly these ideas of parental rights around knowing these things about your kid and your entitlement to knowing these things very quickly can transform into discourse that suggests kids as property of parents.
1: Absolutely, and you know, and as I'm a parent as well, a family therapist, so I'm going to put my parent hat on. And first of all, you know, I hope that everything that I do as a parent uh, illustrates that I don't think that as a parent I own my children. That I think that's a very um, challenging way of thinking about parenting, let's say. But also, if if either of my children discloses something to another trusted adult, And then I found out later, my first thought is I'm so glad that you had somebody you trusted, that you could tell Mm -hmm. this to. And second, then I will ask myself, have I done anything to make you feel not unsafe or not confident in disclosing this information to me? Not because I'm upset, but because I want to be a better parent. So if there Mm -hmm. is some feedback that I need to receive as a parent, that somehow I've created an environment where you couldn't tell me something. That that's the conversation that I would like to have, not like, oh, my God, why would you tell this person and not me? I'm your parent. Right. It would be like, I am. Hey, I'm so glad you asked somebody you trusted. Be like, is there anything I could have done differently to create a better atmosphere in which you felt safe and confident to disclose whatever it is that you want to disclose
0: to us? And and also too, like, is you not knowing something as a parent even automatically a negative value judgment? Absolutely not. You know, there's plenty of reasons. Like, mm-hmm. as a as a sex therapist, it was quick into my adult life that I heard from my mom. You know, like, honey, you know, you're you're, you're making your father uncomfortable at dinner. <laughs> like, you know, um, and so like, there are just things that. Parents might not need to know, and that's not necessarily an inherent value judgment on them or their safety to tell, like, maybe they're on the list and just in a different order. Like, one of the things that's, you know, really big in, like, these op-eds, for example, in the New York Times is kids socially transitioning at school and whether the Mm -hmm. school is required to tell the parents about that. First off, I think it opens a whole can of worms around safety issues with abusive households. Absolutely. Absolutely. But even to like putting that aside for now and just talking about like the right to know and things like that, like, has anyone asked why the kid hasn't told the parents? Like, maybe, and I'm sure that this is not a rare occurrence, like, maybe the kids just trying it out at school and like workshopping it. Yeah. Before they decide to tell their parents, like, maybe they're like, hey, I want to just like play around with this and see first and have a better idea. And be more sure um, because I really care about my parents and also their feelings toward me are of value to me and I I also don't want to scare them with the ambiguity of me not knowing so I just want to have a better idea first. Oh my Absolutely. God.
1: Life. Yeah. It's, it doesn't have to be a negative. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as a parent who's also a sex therapist and where no conversation is off at our dinner table, yep. you know, it's also like, you know, it's okay to let your children and young people have some autonomy of exploring. <laughs> like, i and often when I work with parents, I talk to them and I say, did you ever have something that you wanted to explore for yourself or you wanted to keep to yourself when you were a teenager that you didn't necessarily want to share with your parents? And 99% of parents are like, oh, yes. And I'm like, so your kid also might have had some things. And sometimes that one of those things is gender identity that they wanted to like cook for themselves or cook with some other people to mm-hmm. stay with that metaphor until it was ready to be presented to you, right? Because I, I think it's so easy for parents to feel uh, out of control. And mm-hmm. I think I wonder if that's one of those things where parents are starting to feel out of control. And so yeah. they want to regain some some form of control on their child.
0: Yeah. And also to like, once again, not a parent. So this may differ if I were to be in that position, but you know, of the various things that my kid could be hiding from me, good, bad, and different, worse, like them trying out a different name or pronouns at school is the least of my
1: concerns. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of people use a different name than their name that were assigned up if I mean, even with my health, at one point we had a conversation where she was like, I don't like my name. I was like, you can change it if you want to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of this thing I saw a million years ago at this point where, like, names from your parents are a gift. And so, of course, too, if you don't like it, like, parent probably is, well, not even probably, just is valid to have some feelings about that. But all the same, it is a gift and thus the person is not obligated to keep it.
1: And it's a gift that's given to somebody you don't know yet. Like yes. when I was choosing the name for mildness is my only bio kid, so I didn't have a hand in choosing the name of my other yeah. child. But when I was choosing the name of the my child, one of my children, um, you know, I didn't know her yet. Mm-hmm. And so you make your best guess based on your own needs, your own. Wants your own ideas, and then this little being comes into the world, and they're themselves, and then they tell you who they are. And sometimes it doesn't match, and that's okay. Like mm-hmm. you know, we've we've given you this gift, and we made our best guess that this hopefully will suit you. My baby doesn't, and that's okay.
0: And mm-hmm. and also too, like on on the reverse as well. Like if we go with this like overly simplistic idea that like a lot of trans people want to change their names and things like that, like. I for one is someone who has all reason where I should quote unquote want to change my name. I actually really like it. Exactly. So like mm-hmm. cool, like it was it was one thing you picked right mom, like there were a couple other things that, you know, the guess was incorrect. Uh like I think about my parents, you know, laughing about my dad's side of the family joking, you know, everyone stops once they have like one of each and it's just me and my sister, so they joke that, you know, they they got it out of the way early. Uh, and then I messed it up. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, plot twist. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, guessing some other things, you know, didn't land as much. But actually, you nailed the
1: name. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. And sometimes also when you give young people the option to explore, you know, like with my kid, I was like, yeah, change your name if you want to. They were like, yeah, I thought about it. I didn't feel that strongly about yeah. it. And I'm like, That's oh. it out. Exactly.
0: And that goes back into the the idea that like the number one thing that we can do if if we are really truly concerned about like kids making the wrong decision or regret mm-hmm. rates or things like that, the best thing that we can do is encouraging especially around the area of social transition a safe space to just try it out. Absolutely. And just play.
1: Yeah. And it's okay and it and and you're supported no matter what. You're yep. loved no matter what, you're supported, cared for no matter what. I feel like we'd have this conversation for a long time, but I want to yes. be respectful of your time. I do have one kind of last question that I want to close on, which is um, what do you see the how do you see the impact of this current kind of political climate and this increasing increasing wave of anti-trans legislation impacting uh, trans folks around you, whether it's clients or folks mm-hmm. in community. I know I've noticed that it's definitely having an impact, and so I was wondering if you've noticed that too.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and seen and lived, um, of course. You know, from our our own lived mm-hmm. experience as trans people too, and and of course I have the the unique experience of both being a person of lived trans experience as well as a yeah. provider of gender affirming care. So this kind of double whammies, you know, personally and professionally. Um, but it's a lot.
1: It is it's a lot.
0: so much mm-hmm. and it's so heavy. And, and the thing that particularly bothers me is like, if we think about privilege and the idea of privilege and the things that people take for granted that they don't have to experience so many people in this case, you know, CIS people Don't have to wake every day seeing countless news articles, seeing countless videos, treating their legitimacy and right to exist as a political debate. Yes. And that is heavy. And like it or like I'm in my late 20s like that already just sucks. And like I've been in my like gender identity for almost a decade like. It sucks. But then I think about the kids. Dealing yeah. with this. And having to watch this every day. And see this every day. And also see it inform how some people. May or may not be treating them. Because of course this also just emboldens. Uh, a lot of bullshit. Frankly. Uh, mm-hmm. In in interpersonal relationships. And from their peers. Uh, and it just is. Gross. Gross.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mm
0: -hmm. it just gets back to that controlling bodies Mm -hmm. deciding that we should tell others who they are instead of us getting to to name our own selves, literally and metaphorically. Um, Absolutely.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think about that too. I mean, it gets me down, and I'm, you know, I'm in my fifties. I've been out for almost twenty years now as trans. I was like, is it really that long? And I was like, yeah, it's getting there um and well you know out to the world 15 years but you know that's all there's stages right that we go through um yeah if this is heavy for me and i'm a mental health provider i have a lot of support at home yeah you know i have a caring family caring partners caring kiddos um what is it like for like a 12 year old a 10 year old a 13 year old to be under this barrage of Mm -hmm transphobia especially if they are not supported at home my heart really breaks Um,
0: and when I think about that yeah and as we mentioned before like half the point of like the blockers and other things is the fact that kids are already dealing with so much so then you add all this yes and it it just sickens me to my core that so much of the rhetoric around this is around protecting children mm-hmm. and for children's well-being and things like that and it's like if you just would read mm-hmm. or look at even the littlest bit of science or yeah, talk god to forbid, a professional yeah. Yeah. or god forbid talk to a person yeah like talk to a trans person <laughs> yeah. like um I mean, this podcast is called Gender Stories. You know, we we all have these stories. And if you would just hear one.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. With an
0: open mind and open heart, like, just seeing, you know, trans people are people. It's mm-hmm. It kind of gets into what I was talking about at the beginning, too, where it's like, like, it's so special getting to provide something as beautiful as gender affirming care, but also at the same time, like, there's simultaneously this weird thing where there's nothing really special about gender affirming care because it's just care.
1: Shouldn't all care be affirming of who right. we are? It's like, just me
0: treating you as a person and letting you yeah. say who you are. And, and yeah, so. Yeah.
1: As one of my elders would say, it seems like it's just good manners. Yes. <laughs> like at the very least. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yes. It's just good manners. Yeah.
1: I always ask, is there anything that we haven't covered that you absolutely wanted to make sure that you talked about in this episode?
0: I think just recognizing that it is really heavy. It's really gross right now. Um, It's a Mm -hmm. lot. Um, And I think it's a time, not that any time has been any different, but I think just now all the more so where We have to be scared and brave simultaneously. Um, And so I think to the trans folks listening and other gender diverse folks, you know, just keeping on, keeping on and and knowing that you have community and people around you who love and support you. And then for the cis people and the allies and advocates and accomplices, uh, as my colleague Zhang Un likes to say, step the hell up. we need you like a lot right now call your people get things happening um i i see the story now and again of that like one congressperson who's been filibustering for like four weeks now or something Mm -hmm. It's like iconic behavior you know now is the time to to not be quiet and just sit and watch on the sidelines like get into it um you know uh I saw a thing too, you where it was like, if you're, if you claim to be an ally and aren't getting hit by the rocks thrown at us, you're not standing
1: close enough. That's a beautiful way to put it.
0: And so yeah.
1: get time closer. To, time to be accomplices, as many Indigenous um, movement organizers, leaders say, rather than allies. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Colton. It's been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. If listeners want to get hold of you so you can provide training on gender or to contact you or to buy your beautiful book, Spread (laughs) Love and Buttercream, where could they find you?
0: Yeah, so uh, you can find me... My website is just ColtonSheniky.com. Uh you probably will struggle to spell it. So just look at the description of the podcast episode. I will put in that uh, ep-
1: in the episode. Don't worry. <laughs> and then
0: uh yeah, so ColtonSheniki.com. Um and then all the same too. You can follow me at Colton on Twitter. So yeah. And Instagram. Yeah. Yes, so. for
1: as long as sweetheart lasts. Who knows? Yes. <laughs> So thank you so much again. And for all you listeners, I hope that this episode of Gender Stories was informative. And uh, if you are a cis person who's listening and you want to do more, there are so many ways to engage. And I'll put a couple of those ways to engage and keep up to date with what's happening in the episode description. So thank you again, Colton. What a pleasure to have you. And uh, and thank you, listeners and viewers. Maybe now that you're you're yes. on YouTube, for listening or watching this episode. Until next time, bye. bye.